This is the Education Gadfly Show. Just a, a bandwagon. Oh, you know. uh-oh. <laughs> and, and, and I'm like, <laughs> like you are. You That's totally me. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at, at excellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, the Braden Holtby of Education Reform, Tim Daly. Tim, welcome. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. I'm not sure if I said that name right. Holby, the goalie for the Washington Capitals. Tim, you're from Chicago, and you're used to having you know championship teams in various sports. We've but had we many a Blackhawks Hawk, Black parade the last couple of years. Yeah, we year. have <laughs> not had a championship in this city in a long, long time, and the Caps have never won the Stanley Cup, and they are up three games to one, and Washington's excited. I'm excited. That's great news. I had no idea. Yeah, we're well, not paying attention. Game force tonight in town. Uh, Let's game see, game five. five is in Vegas yes. on Thursday. Okay. So it. check it out. All Root right. for the Caps. Yeah, you know, everyone likes, you know, the, Trump calls it a swamp. But, uh, you know, for hockey, what? It's like a frozen swamp. So then it's okay. <laughs> You're getting very, very ahead of yourselves. And if they lose, like, DC will be in stitches. And Not they, stitches, and, they may. and welcome to my co-host, Alyssa Schwank. Already here, but yes, I'm TJ What's-His-Face, who rode the Metro. That's uh, my new favorite Caps it was, player. There was a hockey player who had to ride the, who rode the Metro to the game, which is awesome. Yes, even though plated khakis, but anyways. All right, and and of course, uh, of course, not like the metro is reliable, and so I. I'm sure he left more. like three hours early just yes. to make sure, and he apparently didn't have enough change, but a fan helped him out. Are you serious? <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> yes. hilarious. That's he awesome. like did not have enough on his card to make it all the way in. <laughs> I'm loving super, everything about this story. Cool. That is awesome. Well, hey, Tim is a founding partner of Ed Navigator. We're going to let Tim tell us about that. He is also the uh, what the former president of TNTP. Tim has done all kinds of awesome stuff in his career, uh, and we're so excited to have you here on the show, Tim. Thanks for having me. And now it's time for Ed Reform Update. So tell us about Ed Navigator. It's, uh, I think, a super cool organization, but I always find a lot of people don't know what it is. You are working out there kind of quietly. We are, yeah. We so do. let's fix that. Let's change that. There's two things. So the first thing is we help parents navigate school for their kids. And we do that regardless of the kid's age. So we have uh, parents of pre-K children all the way up through post-secondary. Uh-huh. We also help adults uh, navigate their own educational needs. And we do it by connecting them with navigators who are knowledgeable experts who have worked in the field of education and understand how to present information and choices to families uh-huh. in a way that they can uh, digest and kind of serve as almost their, I don't know, strategic advisor for uh, for the educational process. I mean, this is super retail, right? Super I retail. mean, right. I mean, if, if you think about greatschools.net is sort of wholesale. That's right. You know, half of all parents go there once, you know, once a year to check out stuff about schools. This is real people trained to work kind of basically one-on-one Correct. with parents. And much of it in person. So yeah. the second part of it is that we work with employers. So employers make this available as a benefit to their employees, yeah. especially hourly workers. And the navigators pay visits to the work sites. So they meet with folks before work, after work, or on yeah. a break. So many times they, they could be virtual. They could be a phone call. But sometimes it's uh, sitting across from somebody in the break room. Super cool. Working in New Orleans and Boston right now. I imagine other cities might be interested. They should get in touch with you. Yeah, they right. should. All right. So one of the things that you have done is as as you've been working closely with families and listening to their needs and their interests and how they, they view schools, uh, you noticed that uh, there was a certain group of kids who were not being well served. Uh, and you wrote up a report about that. And it's a topic that's near and dear to our heart. It's about high achieving, low income kids. Uh, tell us, tell us what you've learned about them. 
the first thing we learn is that there are lots of them. So I think oftentimes when we talk about uh, educational trends, there's this assumption that income and achievement correlate perfectly. And so therefore all high income kids must be high achieving and yeah. all low income kids must be low achieving. But there's a significant number of uh, kids in the New Orleans area and across Louisiana that are doing really well. Uh, and it's not a few hundred, it's thousands of them. Yeah. The second thing is that you it doesn't matter how you measure it. Um, you could measure it based on how well they perform on state tests. And there are kids that perform at the very top of that range. Mm-hmm. It could be that they have incredibly good grades or they qualified for gifted and talented mm-hmm. programs or that they you know went to high school and were able to pass ap courses despite mm-hmm. you know their their school um not having the level of instruction that you might associate with with uh being ready to attempt those types of classes there are students that are doing really really well yeah um, and and these are kids that so many people care about they say that's okay, right we, we we feel bad uh and, and right. worse that there's not more low-income kids on elite college campuses right you know we all understand that we want to have the ranks of right. you know academia and the military and right. government and business to be diverse like right. our society so this all seems like a good news story here's these yeah. kids they're they're low income many of them kids of color and they're doing great so what's the problem in theory it's all positive story and also in theory uh students that that uh meet this description are an enormous priority but in reality what we noticed is that even when students were doing very well they seem to face obstacles on the horizon mm-hmm. that would make it difficult for them to remain high performers for the long term mm-hmm. and in the uh, report we tried to describe some of those so people get a very detailed sense of not only exactly how this plays out but how sometimes the simplistic solutions that we might initially suggest are probably not adequate to the challenge like what so i'll give you an example of uh one of the students that we describe in the report is named uh, DeAnthony. He's a fourth grader. Mm-hmm. And the first time he took the state test in third grade, he got the highest possible category score in all four wow. tests, which almost never happens for any student in Louisiana. He's a young African-American boy. So this is a, a like we are desperate to have greater achievement among um, students like uh, DeAnthony. And his um, parents both work in the hotel industry and are hourly workers, so they're very much our target audience. So, you know, what's what's the problem? Um, he goes to a traditional public school just outside New Orleans and had been in a charter school previously. But in all the years that he'd been in school, nobody had ever had a single conversation with his parents about him potentially being sort of an advanced student or mm-hmm. maybe qualifying for a magnet program or mm-hmm. uh, special services. They'd never heard anything. When they What they had heard is school comes easily to him. And they had internalized, basically, DeAnthony is doing great. We don't have to worry about him. Mm-hmm. Their older son, two years older in sixth grade, has special needs. And part of the reason the boys had moved around schools is because he wasn't served very well. Even though he's two years older, DeAnthony reads better than mm-hmm. his older brother does. They worry about him a lot. Mm-hmm. And they worry about what placement he's going to be in. They worry about his mm-hmm. um, his accommodations. And uh, the first thing that people say is, well, if he's doing so well his parish runs a magnet program. Why doesn't he go to one of the schools where he would be doing on grade level work, but there's no way his brother would qualify for one thing. And the parents don't want the boys to be separated. Second complication is the admissions process for those magnet programs starts in kindergarten. DeAnthony's in fourth grade. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what he scores on the, on the test. There's virtually zero chance that he's going to get admitted because there are so many families that are trying for a handful of seats that are available. And the school that he attends now basically offers no programming whatsoever for students that are ahead of grade level. Mm -hmm. And in his school, maybe 15% of kids are on grade level. He's two grade levels ahead of of where his grade Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. So, very little of what he encounters in the course of a day 
is consistent with with his ability. And this year, we started to hear some whispers and um, concerns about behavior and talking mm-hmm. back, kind of minor stuff, but stuff that's typical for a kid who's bored in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, so the to go back to the question of simplistic solutions, the, some folks hear his situation and say, well, he needs more school choice. Mm-hmm. But there's already is school choice in his uh, uh, parish to some degree, and he'd been in Orleans Parish where he has mm-hmm. universal school choice. Neither of those worked well for him. The second thing that people say is, well, his school needs more resources to serve kids like him, but there aren't that many other kids at his school that are like him. So it's, it's difficult to say, let's start a program at his school mm-hmm. for students who are academically advanced because it may not be the best use of resources for the whole. So his individual circumstance is not an easy one to resolve. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the gifted and talented folks maybe would say, well, then acceleration is, is is something we should consider, right? That he should be allowed to move up to the fifth or the sixth grade, you know, and, and that uh, that there's good research and evidence that even though people forever have been worried about, well, do those kids do okay socially? Or right. they, you know, that the, that the benefits for most kids outweigh the negatives, but there's huge ideological resistance to that in most most schools. Uh, educators just have this bias against it, right? Uh, but that might be a might be the kind of option. But no, but it, it, and it points out. Look, you know, and even affluent parents of gifted and talented kids or advanced kids, you know, mm-hmm. will complain that they feel like the schools aren't very responsive to their needs. Right. But you know, but the evidence seems to be that they are still tend to be more responsive. That if you're affluent. Most likely, there's a lot of other high-achieving kids in your kid's school, and so they can get served better together. There are other resources, or you have the ability, you know, to, to pay for a private school or to do stuff after school that that yeah. provides that challenge. And, and the question is, how can we make sure that that our schools say, hey, we've got to play that role for these kids who are, again, hugely high-potential kids if we can keep challenging them? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and I think it has to start with recognition. There has to be an acknowledgement that yeah. the student is doing well and it can't be overlooked. I can say without hesitation that what you just said is true, which is that the way that school responds to you when you're the parent of a high achieving student is yeah. very different based on class. Yeah. I'll give you another example from the uh, from the, the uh, set of anecdotes that we reported. We have a student in high school who uh, also is at a traditional public high school near New Orleans, but not in it. 11th grader. Very strong student, but not except like grades are, are good, but they're not stratospheric. Yeah. Um, the reason that she's always been considered high performing is that she crushes it on tests. So she yeah. has the opposite problem that we often hear about with low income kids where they have high grades, but low test scores. She mm-hmm. has outstanding test scores. She gets put in an accelerated coursework. Sometimes she, she focuses, sometimes she doesn't. Um, but she's going to graduate in the top 20% of her class and has a chance to have an eye-popping ACT score. That probably will open a lot of doors for her. Yeah. Uh, the average ACT score in her school is a 16. Wow. She's yeah. probably going to score a 25 or a 26. When it came time to register for the ACT her junior year, her school takes it as a group during the state testing window. She wanted to take it earlier so she could get more chances at the test Mm -hmm. and also a chance to get on the radar of colleges. Mm -hmm. She needed to get a fee waiver to get the cost of the test waived to get that. She needed to go to her guidance counselor. Her guidance counselor told her that she couldn't bother with a fee waiver because she was so busy with the 12th graders that were trying to meet graduation requirements that she didn't have five minutes to sit, to spend filling that out for her. Yeah. We thought, you know, everybody has a bad day. Everybody has a busy workload. We'll appeal to the principal. The principal can help us get it sorted out. The principal told us that if the guidance counselor says she doesn't have time for it, she doesn't have time for it. (laughs) Eventually, we had to get the superintendent of the district to order the principal, to order the guidance counselor to sign a waiver form so one student could get a fee waiver 
for an ACT. How much time did you, that take? Opposed to the five right? minutes it would have taken her to just sign but it. I also, I also want you to imagine yeah. for a second that that could ever in a million years, that type of paperwork issue yeah. for a high-performing no, student no, who's no. proactively trying right. to put herself on the radar of colleges, that that would ever, ever yeah. happen. And that every college in the country is saying, we desperately want more kids right. like this. So when we apply. say there's undermatching, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. there, there this, is, this is a tiny link in that chain. Mm-hmm. But these are the sorts of things that seem unbelievable. Yeah. And um, you think... Completely believable, yeah. actually. Yeah. So. And, and no, and it's so, so important. And, and, the, and the point being, again, every kid should be a priority. And particularly every low-income kid, and that, of course, we worry a lot about low-income kids who are far behind and they need our help, but low-income kids who are doing well need our help too because otherwise they're not going to be doing well tomorrow right. or next year or the year after that. That's right. Uh, and it's a huge lost opportunity. Tim, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Are, are you paying attention to the Caps? Of this- course, I'll watch the game. <laughs> Amber is an actual night. sports fan, she unlike is. me. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, once it gets to like you know Stanley the, the final levels. Stanley Cup yeah. thing, like you got to tune in for that. So yeah. it was, it was yeah. great. It was a great game, right? <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. I've been as I asked my son Nico about you know who's who's really into this at school, and he was telling about these various boys, and some of them he describes as well. You know, so and so is just a a bandwagon. Oh, you know? uh oh, and, and I'm like. <laughs> Like you are. About? That's totally me. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, I, I can't say Shade I'm a huge Capitals fan, but right. hey, it's right. exciting for our well, city. Well, I bought my godson a Holtby jersey for Christmas last yes. year that was like 120 bucks yeah, for a so kid's size. It was a kid's size version. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. youth large. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By, and by it the was way, that much. pro tip, buy the youth size even for, for adults because they, oh, yeah. they tend to run big, get, get an yeah, adult large. No, yeah, no, they were very big. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, a, a youth large instead of the adult size? Yeah. No comment, Mike. <laughs> that works for me. Okay. That was what I remember. As, as a, but, yes. but it was not cheap even that. Yeah. But whatever. And Holtby, you said it probably better than I did. I don't know if I said it, but I was talking <laughs> yeah, about you No, know, Amber, yeah. Amber said it right. <laughs> yeah. All right. But we digress, as we often do. What, what study do you have All for right. us? We got a new study forthcoming mm-hmm. in the Economics of Education Review called Boosting School Readiness. Should Preschool Teachers Target Skills or the Whole Child? What do you guys think? Or both. <laughs> I just want both. It sounds like I want kindergarten. Both. I want both. You false dichotomy alert. Just it's not a false can't dichotomy. Have both. The study Ugh. uses experimental data to determine what types of preschool curriculum are most effective in pre-K classrooms that span public preschools, private childcare, and Head Start programs, primarily serving low-income families. The study pulled data from the Preschool Curriculum Evaluation Research Initiative Study. I know you guys know that one. Uh, began in 2003 and required evaluations of 14 different early childhood education curricula in preschool centers. Each of the... Are you guys listening to me? <laughs> I feel like I'm losing my audience here, people. It's been I'm going to get to the findings in a second. Just <laughs> let me get through. It just sounds familiar for some oh, reason. Oh, Familiar. Don't right. Each of the grantees was responsible for collecting various data for independent evaluations, but this is the first time that somebody came in and looked at all of these evaluations, kind of did like yep. a meta-analysis okay. across these 14 evaluations, comprised about 2,000 kids. Each grantee randomly assigned... We love this design, right? Randomly assigned assigned whole schools or classrooms uh, within schools to either treatment or control curricula. All right. There were three broad types of curricular assignments. One, the whole child curricula, which is defined as what most Head Start centers use, which uses child-centered active learning. 
where teachers lead small and large group activities centered around 11 interest areas. So this is like everybody's great idea of when you're a preschool kid. Mm -hmm. You go to the little centers, there's blocks at one, there's dramatic Mm -hmm. play at another, toys and games, art music, that kind of stuff, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, That was the business as usual and control condition. The second bucket was locally developed curriculum that is just that, like whatever they're developing locally, that was a second business as usual approach and the second control condition. And last, number three, content-specific curriculum in math or ELA that targeted specific academic skills. That was the treatment. Okay. Woo. They did different combos of analysis such that treatment and control curricula were compared. They also leveraged, just as important, little factoid, they leveraged classroom observation data that examined interactions between teachers and students. Okay. Key finding, the whole child curricula did much better on the process measures for classroom culture, virtually every single one of them, than did the other curricula. Yet, the content-specific curriculum did much better on the academic readiness measures. Mm -hmm. So the Woodcock-Johnson and the Peabody picture test, Mm -hmm. those tests that we give little Mm -hmm. kids, uh, then did the whole child or the local curricula. For instance, children randomly assigned to the math content curriculum had 0.35 standard deviation higher math and 0.25 standard deviation higher academic composite score, which is obviously amalgam, at the end of preschool compared to children receiving the curriculum, uh, the creative curriculum, rather. Mm -hmm. That was the whole child thing, okay? Analysts conclude that whole child curriculum should not be mandated, which is apparently what happens in Head Start centers Mm -hmm. um, because it doesn't have as much research showing good things. Uh, moreover, they end with this, which I thought was pretty, pretty strong for researchers to say, because you know how sometimes they just want to kind of not give you policy, political impl- I mean, mm-hmm. policy recommendations. In the absence of such evidence, we conclude that policy effects should focus more attention on assessing and implementing developmentally appropriate, proven, skills-focused curricula and move away from the comparatively ineffective whole child approach. And then they end with this, um, which I don't know, We that's, maybe we want to think that's a little harsh, but they end with saying, you know what, by the way, we found no link between these measures of curriculum, I mean, classroom quality and curricular impacts. Mm-hmm. So you can go in and you can have reviewers that think that ki- the teachers are hitting it out of the park in, re- in terms of how they're interacting with kids, because that's what we care about. Like, mm-hmm. what's, the, what's the quality of the teacher-student interaction? And it was all these other things around classroom culture, but yet they basically had no relationship right to the Mm -hmm. academic um, outcomes that we typically like to see so they say you know don't don't rely too heavily on these process outcomes Mm -hmm. to measure school readiness for kids it's a lot that is a lot well look it's not surprising that in classrooms where they're not teaching much reading and math the kids aren't learning much reading and math math, right even if they're doing all kinds of things and making the kids feel safe and having nice interactions and the like which Mm -hmm. is not to say that they shouldn't do that right Mm -hmm. i mean it's just that they should do that and they should teach reading and math right but can't you learn some of this stuff through these centers yes you can (laughs) yes you can can't you learn math through blocks yes you can you can also have math centers everything through like second grade can be done in centers just no one does it uh, oh. all right but it's going to anyway. need some guidance too right i mean I, I, so, my entire after my entire day when i was teaching kindergarten was in, entirely in small group instruction yeah. and some of it was stuff the kids you know had i had taught them earlier and it was mm-hmm. them practicing a skill some of it was led by my aide some of it was direct instruction to me yeah. in a small group yeah, but that's right they spent max right. an hour 
Yeah. And whole group instruction. Right, right. Mm-hmm. but it doesn't, but it had some direct instruction, is all I'm saying. If, if the goal right. is to make sure the kid can count to 100, you know, you need to teach them that, that at some point, right? If they need to know their letters, you need to work on that. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you know, and then they can do the other stuff yes. too. But it does, it, it reminds me of back in the old days when we used to criticize the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards and saying, you know, the, the, the impulse was, was in many ways very promising, but that they had an idea of what good teaching looked like mm-hmm. uh, that was just basically what a bunch, you know, what sort of many ed teachers thought good teaching looked like, uh, but it wasn't validated by whether kids actually learn more right. by that way or not. Mm-hmm. And, and it's that mismatch. And, and it felt good, right? And people enjoyed it and kids yeah. enjoyed it and parents liked it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, the yeah, performance, they... it's uh, mm-hmm. right. But, but, you know, this radical idea we have, you know, all these right. years later that let's actually pay some attention to whether kids are right. learning or not. Do they get into it all in one of the biggest uh, debates right now in pre-K circles and early childhood circles is teacher quality and teacher mm-hmm. certification and teacher education levels. So do they get in at all to if there were any variations there or right. like what the I average level of that. instruction? That was not a part of this study. Okay. Right. No. I mean, what they're using as a proxy for teacher quality is how the teacher is scoring on this classroom observation instrument, right? Which and is the super quality reliable. of their interaction with the kid. Mm-hmm. What we're saying is sometimes if a classroom feels all warm and fuzzy mm-hmm. and the teacher seems very caring and mm-hmm. you know the culture seems like what you'd want your kid to be in that type of classroom um, that doesn't necessarily mean the teacher is effective yeah, yeah. so boom uh, <laughs> yikes all right okay. so bring in the yeah. yes walk, walk. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. hey well you know what i'm about to say this is all the time we have for this week but before we go yes we have oh, to God. say farewell uh, to yes. Alyssa. Yeah, last show you, thank Alyssa. you guys i'll miss you, you too great on the yes, podcast indeed Been fun Alyssa schwank heading off to bellwether education partners mm-hmm. after taking a little time off to <laughs> See Europe. Yeah, parts of it, not all of it. But yep, I'll be popping back up into education reform after some hiking in Iceland and beaches in Portugal and Macron classes in France uh, at the end of the month. It's busy. It's a busy vacation. It does sound good. Well, maybe someday we'll have you back on the show. Always happy to come back and give you some guff. Yes, (laughs) keep all our secrets safe. Oh, my hair is full of secrets. Uh, (laughs) All right. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. Until. Next week, (laughs) (laughs) or not. (laughs) I'm Alyssa Schwenk. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.